Super Talk Mississippi media production. He's the former president and publisher of the Sun-Herald, and now he's on the radio. Welcome to Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. Welcome back to Coast View. I really enjoyed that conversation with Woody Bailey. We're going to shift gears. Speaking of cruising the coast, uh, we're going to talk about gas and uh, more, more specifically the energy policy in America. And something's important to us because of the price of gas, of course, but it's also important to us because one of our leading industries here in coastal Mississippi is the Chevron refinery in Pascagoula. And it's important for us to be aware of, you know, how it fits into sort of the, the national energy policy and the really, I don't know, uh, tenuous geopolitical issues that are that are, uh, that are are facing us as we speak. And I have uh, someone I just want to go ahead and bring him into the conversation, Austin Golding. He's been on the show several times. He's, he's the CEO of, of Golding Barge Line. Uh, it's a family business. They operate in essentially every U.S. inland waterway, and they do a lot of petrochemical products, petroleum products, chemical products, and they're in a really good position. I referred to him while we were talking before the show as sort of this barometer of um, everything having to do with petroleum and our energy policy, both nationally and, and internationally. Austin, how you doing, my friend? Doing well. It's been a stressful few weeks with this low water getting here and, and planning on staying here. So to manage it's been tough, but I'm doing well. Yeah, well, you could. We'll we'll hit that first. Um, you you were on Super Talk last week and talked about it. And what's uh, what's interesting? I have a place up in the Delta. You and I have talked about this before. And uh, the way that I would characterize what I saw. Well, it certainly has been great for the farmers. As you know, they've been able to get their harvest done. They've had a really good harvest year. For those of us planting food plots and doing work to get duck habitat ready to go, it's been great. It's been extraordinarily dry and dusty. I've never seen so much dust, man. It took me hours to get the cracks and crevices of my truck cleaned up. But, But I saw a lot of dry lakes and ponds and... Boy, the impact that this sort of heat wave has had on the Mississippi River is dramatic, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's even more dramatic north of it uh, in the Ohio Valley and in the upper Mississippi River uh, basin. I mean, the entire valley, the entire watershed has been incredibly dry uh, this summer and coming into this low water season. And we typically see low water this time of year. Uh, this, this is probably a good 10 to 20 percent more extreme than we're normally uh, operating in around this time of the year. And how does it tell me how it affects you guys? What does it mean? Well, I think the biggest thing that it affects us is the amount of cargo we can carry on the barge. Uh, right now, we're actually lo- light loading a lot of our barges by a couple feet. Uh, normally, we can load to about a nine and a half foot draft. Now we're loading down as low as an eight foot to seven and a half foot drafts in some cases. The, the grain guys and the dry cargo guys that are carrying less hazardous products normally go about 11 and a half to 12 foot draft. Uh, they're down to a 9.6 or a 10-foot draft themselves. That's a lot of tons. So what we've been saying the last week is it's taken about five barges to move what four barges did a month ago. And that'll probably turn into it'll take six barges to move what four barges can move in probably two weeks. Hey, do you have the capacity to do, to do that? Well, we'll see. You know, this industry has been starved uh, from a, a, a equipment building standpoint. Uh, there's a lot of shortage for hopper barges out there. Uh, we'll see. You know, I, I watch a lot of empties getting pushed northbound uh, this week, so they're trying their best to, to make a loop on it. And look, there's there's some financial benefit to getting as many empties up here as you can. Uh, there's a lot of they're running. I know a lot of grain even south now by truck. They can't wait on the barges. 
uh, which is extremely inefficient to run it by truck. So that tells you the type, the type of financial penalty these farmers and a lot of these ag companies are willing to take on just to get their product to market. I mean, it's tough. Austin, it's interesting. I mean, it's also, I, I, in this particular case, it hasn't rained, but I'll just use the when it rains, it pours uh, kind of analogy. When you think about inflation and how it's impacting everything, this is the worst time to have to deal with this kind of scenario, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. And, and this will have an impact uh, on gasoline prices in our region. It'll definitely have an impact on the type of margin that certain people can draw down on their on their crops and their harvest. They've, they've gotten out. Uh, it'll increase costs to build roads and different kind. I've heard a lot of people from the concrete industry can't get uh, their source material in or out right now. And there's a lot of other industries that get their ba- beginning source material, iron ore, uh, different grades of aggregate, different grades of chemicals that are not going to be moving at the same volume. And, you know, one way to think about our industry that's kind of a, a one-two punch, the barges are what make money. The boat is a necessary evil. It costs me the same to fire that boat up and crew that boat, whether it's got one barge or 40 barges in front of it. Uh, so the more barges I can put in front of it, the more money I can make. That boat's going to cost, that's my cost basis. So the more barges, the more tons in front of that boat, the more profitable and the more efficient it is for the people whose cargo that is. If there's less product, they're going to be carrying more. They're going to be paying more per ton, per ton for that boat to get their product to the to the next port. Well, you and I, you and I, are going to talk more about the the need for refinery capacity in America. We're going to come back to that in a second. But just as signals around sort of a non coherent energy policy has uh, has essentially informed oil companies to not invest in refinery capacity. You know, you start that starts to kind of dwindle on down to you eventually to say you're going to be reticent actually to build your capacity as well, right? I mean, it impacts you, doesn't it? Oh, it's affected. I've I've had that in our decision making for the last two years, um, at least two years. Uh, we are not excited about building more oil and gas assets. I'm more excited about building assets that are going to move non-oil and gas products right now. And that's no fault of my customer. That's really more of a fault of the energy policy that I feel like uh, I'm going to own something that's going to be uh, uh, you know draw crosshairs to our business especially draw crosshairs to the cargo that's on the Fed barge. Uh, and my thought process mirrors the process of anybody that's trying to build uh, petroleum-based uh, infrastructure all the way from the refinery down to the new gas station. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're not seeing the private investor want to take that leap. You're not seeing the public investor want to take that leap. And you're not seeing private equity want to take that leap like they did 10 years ago because our assets – you know, have a 30-year lifespan. And when something has a 30-year lifespan, you take your time paying for it. Uh, if I'm supposed to pay for it in short order and make make money in short order on it, this is the wrong business. It's the wrong type of asset. Well, you know, what I enjoy about conversations with you, Austin, is the fact that um, – we both enjoy having a conversation that sort of takes the politics out of it. I mean, we obviously have to do a nod to the politics because the politics and the resulting policies that come out of the politics cause a lot of frustration. But what I like about conversations with you is we can kind of sort through it a little bit. And one of the things that, that really in fact impacted me from past conversations that caused me, as you know, to go do a lot of my own research to understand about this, people want to say that at, that the, that at the basis of a great end, end, uh, uh, energy policy is that we could drill baby drill. But the reality is we're going to do about 11.8 million barrels a day this year. 
Uh, during the Trump administration, we did about 12.3. You said during the break or before the show started, I, in my research, I saw 12.6 barrels a day projected in, in the coming year. You said it actually may be more than that. But that's not that's that doesn't get us that, that doesn't make the, the price of gas fall. I mean, we can we can pump we can pump all the oil we want. We don't have the refinery capacity. In my reading, what I've discovered is that we, we could use as many as three refineries. But in the industry, what do you guys talk about? Well, it, it's exactly right. Um, you know, I, I think the refinery capacity in this country has probably been underserved for the last 15 years. Um, and we saw during COVID several large refineries go offline. I think one maybe in your in your market that would be familiar to people is Phillips 66 Alliance refinery uh done after uh the hurricane that hit it and COVID hit it the demand piece on it uh they just decided to, to shutter it and turn it into a terminal um you're seeing that discussion around calcasie refinery you're seeing that discussion around houston refining company in, in houston um and these are, are assets that are older that are going to require a lot of money to keep them running uh they're not built like some of the newer refineries uh where they're more efficient so the cost of money, the cost of capital going up, and the l- amount of return you can get on an investment that now might only may be viable for five to ten years instead of twenty, they're just not going to put the pieces and parts back in these refineries. They're just going to shut them down. Um, and that, and the refinery that already holds the cards, that holds the that holds the you know the decision, goes well. This helps me get more market share. You know, if I'm already here and you're shutting refineries down, then I have something that became a little bit more valuable, even if I lost even if I lost a piece of the puzzle. Um, you know, with respect to the refinery there in Pascagoula and Chevron, uh, in my opinion, there is no better example of a critical refinery in this country than Chevron Pascagoula. We take products there all the way to Panama City, Florida. If you're driving back from the beach, good chance that gas was gasoline or diesel was made in Pascagoula. We take a lot of those uh, feedstock products that are byproducts of that process west to Houston. Um, those products are being deployed into markets from New Orleans to Corpus Christi that are making finished product that goes around the world. Uh, Chevron Pascagoula, in my opinion, is one of our, this country's, not this region's, this country's most critical refineries and plays a big, big part uh, in our in our nation's economy. I actually recently wrote that it was the most strategically important refinery in the U.S. We saw that a lot after Katrina, man. Look at, look at what happened just because it was... There was, there was this huge concern that Katrina had impacted it greatly. You saw what happened by the disruption around that. Hey, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation and say uh, and talk a little bit more about some of this refinery capability that's actually been taken, our capacity that's been taken off the, the market, what it would actually cost to put it back on the market, and then what would it cost to build a new refinery. We, we, these are the conversations we need to be having in America. That we're not getting the energy independent, excuse me, uh, renewable energies overnight, trust and that's not going to happen. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Austin Golding. You can also listen live to Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on your Amazon Alexa devices. Once you've enabled the skill, just say, Alexa, open Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast. This is Coast View with Ricky Matthews on Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1. So did you hear me say 12.3 million uh, barrels per day during the Trump administration? We're on track to do 12.6 or more 
and and uh, next year. So you think about it. It's not about drilling, and we 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 can certainly always drill more. It's really about refinery capacity when you think about the gas, the cost of gas. Uh, and um, and then, of course, we have this whole geopolitical thing that's happening, not just OPEC, but OPEC plus Saudi Arabia is kind of this de facto leader of OPEC plus. You've got the Russian <laughs> Russian war going on now and all the geopolitical issues about Russia and China and all these other countries that don't like the United States. And they're they're worried about this glut of oil that's out in the international markets today. So they're reducing what they're going to do in terms of uh, barrels per day. And it's going to continue to drive the cost of gas up this is we're always going to be in this middle of this balancing act aren't we and it's a lot there's going to be a lot of factors we don't control isn't that right uh, austin yeah i mean look there's there's you know i i, I chuckle whenever uh, both sides try to say you know we shouldn't send our oil uh, overseas or we should only be ref- refining products for us well i mean last time i checked shell oil companies owned by a Dutch holding company. Um, you know, the, these companies are not beholden to our, our politics or our uh, wants or needs. This is not B- our B- B- BP. Yeah, B- yeah, BP. I mean, <laughs> it, these are not, it's, it, you know, even the big trading houses like VTOL or Total that are also refiners, they're European held companies. You know, they, they're not, and, and it doesn't really matter where they're held. They're in it for them. They're, even the company like Phillips 66, uh, Chevron, Valero, they're beholden to their shareholders, not a voter, and they got to do what makes the most ROI. I mean, that's that's their fiduciary responsibility uh, to hold hold their shareholders' money and make the most money possible. So if they can sell that that product internationally more than they can sell it domestically, they're going to do it. And if you hold stock, you better hope they do it. Otherwise, they're not serving your money well. Um, so that takes a discussion towards how do we foster an environment that encourages them to make their money here and not domestically. And, you know, you do that by not uh, discouraging investment. You do that by having a realistic uh, outline for how we do enter into an energy transition policy. Uh, because I can tell you, uh, from my end, I, I get caught in this discussion a lot where people think we're just full brake, full both foot on the brakes as far as going clean. We're not. I know that being unclean is not sustainable. Uh, if we're having a poor environmental impact, I'm not going to be in business very long. So if we can continue on a path to being better for the environment and being cleaner and more efficient, uh, it's up to me to figure out how to remain in that market. Um, but that's a capitalistic competitive discussion, not a patriotic discussion about what's best for you and I. I mean, that's just the cold, hard facts of it. Um, but, you know, the, the good news is a lot of these refineries are here. A lot of our domestic supply is here and a lot of those jobs are here. And we're blessed with a country that has a lot of maritime access to it, where we can get these products shipped to corner to corner of our country in bulk. Um, but for us to get caught in the middle of a discussion around uh, quick energy transfer that mirrors Europe, that is politically expedient for one group or the other, uh, yeah, we're getting caught in the middle of a political battle more than a capitalistic battle. You talked about um, the the Phillips 66 refinery. I think it was Hurricane Ida. I I may remember that correctly, that that took offline, and it needs a lot of upgrades. In fact, I read the other day that to put it back online would cost more than a billion dollars. And this is a refinery that's already built. Yeah, the same way with a lot of the refineries. You hear that billion-dollar number thrown around, or plus. What does it cost to build a new refinery from scratch? Well, I think maybe the best 
first place to look is what is being built and what's it cost. Uh, then what is being built, uh, you can look uh, in Pennsylvania, Shell just built an ethylene cracker there. And they built the exact same ethylene cracker design around the world. And what ethylene crackers do is going to make them plastic production. Um, they're going to make a lot of the plastics that we use and a lot of the small plastics that we use. Uh, that's a several billion dollar project. In fact, the project in Pennsylvania that Shell put in at one point was the single largest construction project in America. Um, yeah. and, uh, so you can imagine whatever that costs is what <laughs> it's called with the ethylene cracker uh, on its own up there, which is not a full-fledged refinery. That is just a single tower that is going in towards making uh, cracking ethylene down to the point they can make plastics with it. To build a refinery like what's in Pascagoula right now, I mean, I, I, would, I, would, I would think that it would be multiple billions of dollars and years uh, to create something like that. And that, that, a lot of these refineries that are that size started something much smaller and over time were built into where they are now. So it was, Rome wasn't built in a day in a lot of these cases. So to build one that mirrors it would be easily the largest construction project in this country to get one online. That's amazing. Really, really, it's another reason why we should be encouraging companies to invest in existing refineries so that you don't have to start from scratch. Good that would be a much easier thing to do yeah. is to expand capacity yeah. at our existing refineries. Hey, so what it, in the short time we have left, you see this this worsening relationship with Saudi Arabia, not that it was great to begin with, but when you think about where that's headed, how, what's your biggest, and we've got less than a minute, but what's your biggest concern? I think our biggest concern is politically who do they side with, and if they side with our enemies, it's going to make our life a lot harder. Um, I think I think we've decided on you know on our, on our side of the fence that we want to uh, not like them for political reasons, but we better we better make make nice and hold hands, or they're going to make life a lot harder for us. We it have to too. Because so as I mentioned, you don't just have OPEC, but you got OPEC Plus, and for people who don't know what that means, do a little search on it. It's a big deal, and they're the de facto leader of OPEC Plus. Anyway, we'll continue the conversation. Also, it's great to always remind people some of the basics related to this. Have a great day. Good luck with the with the low water and hope to get some rain soon. Thank you. All my best, Ricky. Y'all have a great show. You bet, my friend. Uh, have a great day, and we will uh, see you tomorrow. Follow Super Talk Mississippi Gulf Coast 103.1 on Facebook. Facebook.com slash Super Talk MS Coast 103.1. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.